Several years ago, when my wife and family and I were living in Missouri, saw a sign up in a store about the time of Thanksgiving that really struck me as being... Uh, I'd never seen a particular sign like this, but I think that the individual that put it up uh, summed up quite a bit of the attitude and the feeling of the Thanksgiving season, at least on behalf of many people, when he put this particular sign up in his store window. It read, Happy Turkey Day. Now, that is, unfortunately, about what Thanksgiving Day means to most people. It's a day to sit around and watch football on television. It's a day to uh, uh, overindulge yourself. Uh, it's a day that is a holiday. It's a day that is a lot of things, but one of the things that it is not particularly is a day of reflection and of thanksgiving to Almighty God. If there is, there are many things that can characterize our, our people, many sins that we have, but I think the sin of ingratitude is one of the most widespread. For a lot of people, Happy Turkey Day kind of sums up what this coming Thursday is going to mean to them. Now, I hope that that will not be the summation of what it means to you and I. Thanksgiving Day is shortly coming up. It's something that really now it almost gets lost in the shuffle because they start Christmas advertising right after Halloween. I don't know how long it's going to be before they're going to move back before Halloween, but uh, Halloween's a good pagan festivity in itself, so they really don't want to cut it short. Uh, you know, Thanksgiving's okay to knock out because it has no connection with any uh, pagan origin, but so they, they can kind of cut that short and start in with the uh, Christmas festivities start hanging up their Christmas lights in some of these cities. Uh, some of them are already being put up. Uh, it's, it's incredible. I don't know. Some, somebody somewhere along the line is going to get the idea just leave them up all year round. Might as well do that. Save themselves the trouble. Stay up about six months of the year as it is. But anyway, we live in a land, of course, that is very richly blessed. A land where we have so many things. And yet, as a people, we are an unthankful people. We look at the things that we have uh, as a nation. We've taken the credit. We've. It's, again, interesting the way human nature reasons. You have an insurance policy, and you have coverage in there for various natural disasters. That's covered in a particular clause of your insurance policy. That's called the Act of God clause. Now, God is quick to get the blame. Uh, when a hurricane strikes, when uh, storms strike, when problems come, well, that's an act of God, and that's actually what it's called in legal terminology. Uh, that's uh, the covered by the act of God clause. Now, the fact that we can look out over a verdant land, over a land that is so richly blessed with so many different aspects of minerals, of agriculture, of every seeming, uh, everything imaginable, Somehow we don't usually call that an act of God. Man likes to take the credit for that. Well, look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've built. Just about like the attitude that Nebuchadnezzar had when he looked out over Babylon. And he said, Behold, great Babylon, which I have built by the might of my power. And about that time, you know, a voice from heaven said, This night, O king, is your kingdom taken away from you. And Nebuchadnezzar went start raving mad for seven years, and he learned a lesson. He learned a lesson that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. And at the end of that seven years, Nebuchadnezzar came back and he knew that and he knew that he knew it and God restored him to that throne. Well, that's a lesson that most people have not learned today. Most people don't realize that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. Most people don't stop to consider that 
We are where we are in the fairest, most choice spot in the world by way of, of uh, blessings, of prosperity, of a rich land, because of an act of God. Well, it was an act of God. It is an act of God. And yet, as a nation, as a people, we have been unthankful. We've not been quick to give God the credit. Back in 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued a particular proclamation. I'm going to read a portion of that. I think it's very uh, apropos, something that is interesting. If it was, well, let's notice. President Lincoln wrote, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. Now, he wrote this in 1863. If that was true at that time, how much more true is it today? But we have forgotten God. And again, if that was true in 1863, how much more true is it in 1977? We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us, and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts, that all of these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Now, certainly we haven't imagined a thing like that as a nation, have we? We haven't taken the credit to ourselves and left God out of the picture, have we? You better believe it. These statements were true in 1863 when Lincoln wrote them. But they were, they're far more true and they stand far more applicable to us as a nation here in 1977. I have another statement that was written, this time a poem, that was written by Rudyard Kipling, who was a British poet. This was something that was written at the height of the British Empire, the time when the British Empire ruled one quarter of the world. Every fourth human being on the, on the face of the earth was a subject of the British crown. Britain ruled the sea. Britain was the greatest power, the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. And at that time, at that pinnacle, at that height, this individual wrote a poem which is very prophetic. And I think it's interesting to go through, and, and there was a lot of understanding that many of these people had, uh, particularly some of those involved in the empire building of, of the British Empire in the 19th century, had a lot of perception and a lot of understanding as to the source of their birthright blessings. Uh, Queen Victoria herself realized and understood that she was a descendant uh, of King David and that she sat upon the throne of David. Uh, that genealogy going all the way back uh, that far was preserved and was uh, uh, actually uh, available, was actually on display uh, there at one time in the Tower of London. And uh, this was something that was recognized by many individuals. Kipling wrote, God of our fathers, known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold dominion over palm and pine, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart, still stands thine ancient sacrifice and humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Far called, our navies melt away. On dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh 
entire. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. If drunk with sight of power, we loose wild tongues that have not thee in awe, such boastings as the Gentiles use, or lesser breeds without the law. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. For a heathen heart that puts her trust in reeking tube and iron shard, all valiant dust that builds on dust and guarding calls not thee to guard, for frantic boast and foolish word, thy mercy on thy people, Lord. Now you think about that. That was written at a time when the British Empire was the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. And Kipling could see, he could realize the attitude that many of the British people had toward that empire, the very same attitude that Lincoln referred to in his proclamation. And Kipling referred to the fact that the time would come when the navies would melt away, the beacon fires would sink, and all our pomp, all the greatness and the splendor of the British Empire would be one with that of Nineveh and Tyre. You know, they were pretty big empires at one time, too. Now, how much pomp and splendor do Nineveh and Tyre have today? Well, they've ceased to exist. You know, the, the, the attitude of people, we see when we see ourselves on the top, when we see ourselves on the pinnacle, we look around and say, this will last forever. It's something that will endure forever. Yet, basically, within the lifetime, certainly of one man, the British Empire reached its pinnacle and melted away to virtually nothing. I, I think... Uh, you know, you look at the lifespan of Sir Winston Churchill, and his lifespan, actually, he, you know, he took part in the closing wars of the colonial era of, of the 19th century, the things that actually consolidated the British Empire, uh, the Boer War there in South Africa, uh, the things uh, connected with that. He uh, uh, took part in, in fact, the last cavalry charge of, uh, of modern history there in the... Uh, in the early 1900s there in some of the African campaigns in India and in his when? He died what? 19, uh, 1964? 65? Right in, right in there. 60, 65, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, right, right around the first of that year. By that time, the British Empire had, had completely melted away. It had reached its height, its pinnacle. It had reached the time when Churchill said, as he was Prime Minister during World War II, this is their finest hour, and it was. But you see, they didn't give credit to God. They didn't recognize any more than we recognize that the greatness that they possessed was something that God had given them. Kipling referred to that, talked about if drunk with sight of power, we loose wild tongues that have not God in awe, such boastings as the Gentiles used, realizing that our people, the people of Israel, have certainly no more acknowledged and remembered God than have any of the great world-ruling Gentile empires. No, we have been a nation, the United States, together with the British Commonwealth, the British Empire, that has received so much in the way of blessing. Why, brethren, did so many, did, did, why did so few, so few? Because you realize that, that basically the Israelitish peoples, uh, the, the Israelitish people of Britain, America, comprise somewhere between 6 and 8% of the world's population, a tiny handful. Why have so few had so much? And why do we see it melt away before our very eyes? 
You know, in 1970, as late as 1970, the United States, the British Commonwealth nations, they're talking about the Israelitish portion of it, comprised approximately 8% of the world's population, and yet possessed 40% of all the world's wealth. When you think about that, that's uh, somewhat disproportionate. That's incredible, and actually, in earlier years, the percentage was higher. You know, maybe we had more materially in 1970 than we'd had in 1950, but not on a, on a percentage basis if you compared us with the rest of the world. Even as late as 1950, the British Commonwealth, British Empire, covered 13 million square miles. It was inhabited by 625 million people, which was one-fourth of the population of this earth. In 1950, one-half of the world's goods were manufactured in our nations three-quarters of many of the key products, even as late as 1950. Now, we have an energy crisis today. We are at the mercy of many of the Middle Eastern oil-producing oil states, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Nations. In 1950, the United States and Britain together controlled 60% or, or actually owned, possessed, outright 60% of all of the world's oil and coal. All the world's petroleum and coal, 60% was possessed directly by the United States and Britain. Actually, much of the rest of it was, was controlled by them because uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, which was uh, an independent company or country, uh, was basically uh, controlled by uh, the, uh, the maneuverings of, of um, American and British oil companies. It was a matter that, that what we didn't actually own outright possess on our own territory, uh, we had a great deal of the control of. Seventy percent of the world's gold was possessed by our nations. Ninety-five percent of the nickel, seventy-five percent of the zinc, and you can just go on and on with, with strategic metals, things that, that had major significance. Our nations didn't have eight percent or ten percent or even twenty or thirty percent. In most cases, we it wasn't even half. It was two-thirds or three-fourths or ninety percent. A very disproportionate distribution of the world's wealth. We possessed the gates of our enemies. Britain possessed the Suez Canal, the Straits of Gibraltar, which made the Mediterranean Sea into virtually a British lake, because you see they also controlled the island of Cyprus. They owned that. Uh, they had other strategic islands scattered there in the Mediterranean uh, that served as uh, refueling areas. They controlled the Mediterranean Sea. They controlled the the outlet there from the Red Sea out into the Indian Ocean, uh, controlling there the Aden, the, the, uh, the port of Aden, which was the, the uh, entrance or the exit from the Red Sea out into the, uh, the uh, Indian Ocean. And you could just go around the world. Strategic islands, strategic sea gates, strategic land gates, they were possessed by our peoples. We had the Panama Canal at last, last count. We still do, but for how long? probably not very long, we are finding ourselves the slowly seeing all of the blessings that our peoples have had, the things that we have controlled, the things that we have in many cases taken for granted, have assumed that somehow we maneuvered, we got on our own. We've taken it for granted. We've not given God the credit. And we see these things slowly but surely melt away. The blessings that we have had, the things that we have enjoyed and so great and abundance. The things that all of us have virtually taken for granted here in this land go back to promises made to one man. Based on the obedience of one man, we enjoy 
what we enjoy here today. Back in the book of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Eternal said unto Abram, Get out of your country and from your kindred, from your father's house, unto a land that I will show you. I'll make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. And you shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed. Now, you know, God, when He gave the promise to Abraham originally, did not get very specific. You notice what He told him here. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now, you get up and get out, and you go someplace. I'll show you where you go. I'll tell you where to go. And you go there and do what I tell you to do, and you'll be blessed. Abraham didn't know where he was going. God did not promise any specific geographic location here. He didn't get very specific at all. He just told Abraham, well, I've got something in mind for you. Abraham acted on that. Now, as we go through the book of Genesis, you see that this promise that God originally made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, first few verses, was steadily expanded upon, was made more definitive, more specific, and ultimately it comes down to be, to be very specific and to apply to, to us very directly. Let's go on. Let's notice a little bit. Genesis chapter 13, going on down, notice verse 14. This is after Lot had separated from Abram. The Eternal said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now your eyes, and look from the place where you are, north, northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, to, thee, to you will I give it, and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, so shall your seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land and the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto you. So, Ab so God expanded the promise out to refer to a definite area. And Abraham didn't even know what he was going to get until God promised him this. But it was still a very limited area. It was something that Abraham could actually see as he looked out north, south, east, and west, and he was told to walk the length and the breadth of it. So it was still a fairly small area. Now notice by Genesis chapter 15 that God again expanded the promise. In verse 18 of Genesis 15, In the same day the Eternal made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto your seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now the river of Egypt is the Nile. That's the only river of any importance that there is in Egypt. God here gave Abraham, said, you have ever, I'm going to give you everything from the Nile to the Euphrates. And that's a pretty big area. It's a pretty big area. The, uh, the point that you find here, as compared earlier in Genesis 13, is that God expanded that promise. When he first told Abraham a specific area in Genesis 13, it was an area that Abraham could just go out and walk the length and the breadth of. Now, I don't think I'd want to try to walk from the Nile to the Euphrates. Uh, you might look at a map, you'll find it's a pretty good little distance. It's not, uh, it would not come under the classification of a Sabbath day's journey. Uh, certainly not on foot. Uh, in fact, I don't think you could make it on, I don't, you couldn't make it by car in one day, whether it was the Sabbath or any other day. Uh, it would be, uh, it's, pretty good, it's pretty good distance, includes a, a wide area. So God gave Abraham a specific promise here, he expanded that. Now let's continue on. Notice in Genesis 17, again, God further expanded this promise. Genesis 17, verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Eternal appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be you perfect. The marginal rendering is upright or sincere. You know, be of a complete, you know, be completely sincere, right in your attitude, in your approach, Abraham. You do that 
And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of many nations. Neither shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made you. Now, originally, when God called Abram out in Genesis 12, He merely told him, I will make of you a great nation. Now, in Genesis chapter 17, God says, I will make of you a father of many nations, multiple nations, more than one. So the promise was again expanded. That Abraham was to become, his name was literally changed to Abraham, which means a father of many nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings shall come out of you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, your seed after you and their generation, for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. I will give unto you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So, God further expanded out the promise to Abraham. He referred again to the specific land there in the Middle East, and then told Abraham that he would make of him the father of many nations, multiple nations. Let's go on down to Genesis 22. Now notice, in Genesis 17, this was contingent upon the fact that Abraham would walk before God in a sincere, upright, wholehearted way. So the promise was conditional as late as Genesis 17. But notice what we read over in Genesis chapter 22, verse 16. This is after Abraham had sacrificed Isaac. Genesis 22, verse 16, God spoke and He said, By myself have I sworn, says the Eternal, for because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and your seed, in your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God told Abraham to walk before him and to be wholehearted and totally sincere and upright. When Abraham showed himself willing to sacrifice his only son, God said, Now I know, Abraham, that you fear me. I know that you'll do anything I tell you to do. I know that, Abraham. You have proven yourself. And the promise is here made unconditional. There's no more conditions attached to it. God here swears by himself saying, I will perform that which I say. In blessing, I will bless you. I will multiply your seed. I will give you all of these blessings that I promised you, Abraham. So God expanded the promise here, and God made that promise unconditional. It did not depend on the future obedience of Abraham's children, at least the fact of whether or not they would have a chance at the birthright blessing. Now, as we go on, we find in Genesis chapter 26 that the promises were reconfirmed to Isaac. And it was because of Abraham. Now God told Isaac, notice Genesis 26 verse 3, God told Isaac, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For unto you and unto your seed I will give all these countries. I will perform the oath which I swore unto Abraham your father. 
I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give unto your seed all these countries, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So the promises were based on the obedience of Abraham. And God blessed Isaac, and he uh, gave this uh, particular blessing to Isaac. Now we find down in verse 24, The Eternal appeared unto him, Isaac, in the same night, and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and will multiply your seed for my servant Abraham's sake. So the blessings were based on the obedience of Abraham, on the fact that Abraham served God that Abraham did what God said do. All right, as we go on down, we pick it up in Genesis 27, we find these blessings were reconfirmed here to Jacob. Now you find here that Isaac gives Jacob the blessing, uh, the birthright blessing, which uh, actually Jacob obtained by deceit, but uh, that's a different subject. I don't want to get into that today, except uh, suffice it to say that the prophecy had been made even before Isaac and Esau were, or Jacob and Esau were born, uh, that the elder was to serve the younger, uh, that Jacob was to receive the birthright blessings. God had, had predetermined him to do that, uh, had, had uh, intended to give it through him, and uh, Jacob had a problem. Jacob couldn't wait for God to do it God's way. Jacob couldn't wait for that. He couldn't wait to receive it the way God intended to give it to him. So he had to get a jump on things and try to make sure that things worked out the way they were supposed to. Now, we find much of a parallel to that in our uh, history, the modern descendants of Jacob coming right on down, uh, that in many cases, uh, the birthright blessings that we have are things God intended to give to us. The way that we came to possess them was not, every, in every case, uh, the way that God would have intended that we come into possession of them. Uh, in many cases, it was a matter uh, where there's a little bit of... Uh, or at least in some cases, there was a little bit of chicanery and trickery involved in the same way that Jacob did. But nevertheless, it was God's purpose, God's intention to give it, as it was to Jacob. Now, here is the blessing of as Isaac bestowed it upon Jacob. Genesis 27, verse 28. Therefore God give you of the dew of heaven, and the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down unto you. Be Lord over your brethren. And let your mother's sons bow down unto you. Cursed be everyone that curses you, and blessed be everyone that blesses you. So God, again, confirmed this blessing, again, now here to the third generation, to Jacob. Now notice in Genesis 28, this blessing made to Jacob was expanded. Jacob spent the night here in this particular area, and we read that he put a certain stone down for his pillow. He used it. And while he was laying on that pillow, you find this here in uh, Genesis 28, verse, nine, uh, verse 11, that Jacob lighted upon a certain place. He tarried there all night because the sun was set. He took the stones of that place, put them for his pillows, lay down in that place to sleep. He dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth. The top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. Behold, the Eternal stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land wherein, whereon you lie, to you will I give it, and to your seed. And your seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in your seed 
In you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you in all the places where you go, and will bring you again to this land, for I won't leave you. And we find later in verse 18 that Jacob rose up, took the stone that he had set for his pillows, set it up for a pillar, and poured oil upon it. It's called the name of the place Bethel. And I think I went through a sermon one time on actually tracing the... uh, the movements of that particular stone, Jacob's pillar stone. Uh, you can trace that right through the Bible right on down to our day. Uh, it was the pillar that the children of Israel took with them in the wilderness. It was the pillar that the uh, kings of Israel were coronated standing there upon or beside. Again, as you read that, well, I think we went through it in Kings and Chronicles, example after example, as to how that was done, uh, that it was ultimately taken by Jeremiah to Ireland, and it is right to this day that Queen Elizabeth II was crowned sitting on a rock, the very pillar, Jacob's pillar stone, that is preserved, uh, that has been used right on down through history. Okay, notice God's expansion of the promise to Jacob. God told Jacob, up until this period of time, up until God spoke to Jacob here, the land that Israel was promised, was a land that was only mentioned here as being centered in the Middle East, having as its boundaries the widest ones mentioned prior to this, had been the Nile to the Euphrates, a Middle Eastern area. Now God expands that promise to Jacob and says, Your seed will spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. They will spread abroad, and in them will all families of the earth be blessed. In other words, they're going to spread completely abroad to the north, east, south, and west and come in contact. They'll be be scattered so far that they will come in contact with all of the families of the earth. You couldn't stay there right in the Middle East and have contact with all the families of the earth. It was talking about an expansion, a spreading abroad outside of the area of the Middle East and to an expanding empire that, that went into nooks and crannies all over the face of the earth and brought them into contact with every family, every uh, nationality, every group on the face of the earth. And this is the promise that God expanded out to Jacob. Notice in Genesis 35. Genesis 35, verse 1, God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make you an altar unto God, who appeared to you there when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. So Jacob went up there, and down... The next thing that you have is uh, the account here in verse 10. God said unto him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of you. And kings shall come out of your loins. Now God expanded the promise here. Again, you remember originally Abraham was promised that he would give birth to a great nation, that it would be a nation that would be centered in the Middle East, later being told that the boundaries of it would be from uh, the Nile to the Euphrates. Later, Isaac was told, or Abraham himself was told, that he would not just be the father of one great nation, that he would be the father of many nations. Now, Jacob was told that those many nations would expand outside of the Middle East. They would expand to go to all extremities of the globe. Here, the blessing is made more specific. 
that Jacob would become not merely the father of many nations, but of three specific things that are mentioned here. Of a great nation, number one. Of a company of nations, number two. And of kings, a dynasty of royal lineage. So Jacob was promised, his name was changed to Israel. And Israel was to include a great nation, a company of nations, and a dynasty of kings. The promises were expanded out. They were multiplied. All right, let's go on back to Genesis 48. Here we have the account of Jacob, Israel, as an old man on his deathbed down in Egypt. Of course, you remember the story. I won't go into all the details. The fact that Jacob had 12 sons, that these 12 sons grew up. Ten of them came to hate their younger brother Joseph, sold him into slavery there in Egypt. Joseph rose to prominence with God's help there in the court of Pharaoh. Ultimately, all of Israel and his family came down to the land of Egypt, and now several years have gone by, and Jacob was virtually on his deathbed. In fact, he was. And in Genesis chapter 48, we'll pick up the story as Joseph brought in his two sons. Joseph, the son of Jacob, had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, he wanted, Israel wanted uh, Jacob to bring the son, or Joseph to bring the sons in, so, they, so he did. In verse 8, Israel beheld Joseph's son and the sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said unto his father, Well, these are my sons whom God has given me in this place. He said, Bring them, uh, I pray you unto me, and I will bless them. And Jacob was quite old. He, his eyes were dim. He couldn't see. And so Jacob, uh, Joseph came in and had the two boys. And he, when he made... When he found out who they were, he said, Bring them over here. I want to put a special blessing on those boys. Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so that he could not see. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, and lo, God has showed me also your seed. And Joseph brought them out from between his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand. And Manasseh in his left hand poured Israel's right hand and brought them near unto him. Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, in his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So uh, the, the right hand, of course, was the, uh, you know, the right side, the right hand. That, that was the symbol of greater authority than, than the left. Uh, you know, if you were on the king's right hand, we talk even today about being someone's right-hand man. Uh, it means the, the, the very top position, okay? The boys were brought before him with the older, the firstborn, Manasseh, facing Israel's right hand, where if he just put his hands out and put them on top of the boys, uh, he would have them in the right order. But he did it differently. He crossed his hand over, put his right hand on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, put his left hand on, on Manasseh's head, who was the older. Now, he was doing this wittingly. Verse 15, he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, God which fed me uh, all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lands, and let my name be named on them. In the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father. This is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his hand. 
In other words, he thought, you know, that his dad just couldn't see and had gotten it mixed up. And he said, no, wait wait a minute, Dad. You, you're doing this wrong. You, you've got your hands crossed over. You've got the wrong one on the wrong side. His father, verse 19, refused and said, I know it, my son. I know it. He also, Manasseh, shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, In you shall, God, shall Israel bless, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. So here, the birthright blessing was made even more specific. Again, you know, we saw the progression. Uh, a great nation. Later it was expanded out to be a multitude of nations. Later it was expanded out to Jacob, uh, that he would be the father of a great nation and of a multitude of nations. Now it was expanded out down that, that through his two specific grandchildren, Ephraim and Manasseh. From Ephraim was to come a multitude of nations, a company of nations. From Manasseh was to come a great nation. And that these were the inheritors of the birthright blessing. The birthright blessing would come right down in this way. Now, in Genesis 49, verse 1, Jacob called unto his sons. He said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. This was not a prophecy of what was going to happen to them day after tomorrow, of, you know, the time that he spoke. It was not a prophecy that was going to happen to them uh, when Moses led them into the promised land. It was not a prophecy that was to cover the time of David and Solomon. It was a prophecy that was to cover the last day. That is our modern era of time. So he told them, he said, Gather yourselves together and hear, you sons of Jacob, hearken unto Israel, your father. Then he proceeded to go through each of the twelve tribes. I'm not going to go through all that here. We will in the Bible study. I'll throw that in for good measure. In fact, uh, I have a uh, handout that ought to be available for the next one on, on a table of nations, uh, of all the nations that are listed there in Genesis chapter 10. But I want to concentrate primarily on Ephraim and Manasseh today, so I'm going to skip some of the rest of this. We come on down uh, to verse, uh, down in verse 22, where he picks up the, the story of Joseph. He said, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. Now, how does a vine grow by a well whose branches run over the wall? It's talking about something that spreads out, you know, that climbs and clings to the, to the rocks and, and spreads out. And put, I have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost of the everlasting hills, utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren or that was prince among his brethren. The birthright blessings were to go through Joseph. Joseph was to be the colonizing people to spread out all over the earth and was to be the father of a great nation through Manasseh and a multitude of great nations or a multitude of nations uh, through Ephraim, a company of nations. So that promise was made. It was something that was to be fulfilled in the last time. Now, the birthright blessings were something that Israel did not receive right away. They're things that have uh, basically been postponed until down in our uh, general time period. There was a reason why these blessings were postponed, why they were not given at that time way back then, but rather are blessings that Israel came into possession of in recent times. 
Now, who does the name... Before we go on, let's stop and ask this question. Who does the name Israel properly belong to? You remember what Jacob said? Let my name be named on them. As he crossed his hands over Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, what was his name? Well, his name was Israel. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. And he said, let my name be named on them. So when we talk about Israel, when the Bible uses the term Israel, it refers primarily to Ephraim and Manasseh because they were the ones that had that name named directly on them. It certainly, in a technical sense, applies to all of the descendants of Israel. And all of the descendants of Israel are Israelites. All of the descendants of Judah are Jews. Uh, the term Jew does not include uh, Jew and Israel is not synonymous. In fact, the very first time in the Bible where you see the word Jew occur, we're told that the Jews were at war with Israel, which uh, was a situation, of course, I think you're familiar with how the nation was united, the twelve tribes under Saul, uh, David, Solomon, later split into two kingdoms after uh, the reign of, of Solomon ended and Solomon's son Rehoboam took over and the northern uh, ten tribes split off and called themselves the kingdom of Israel. Uh, the southern tribes, uh, Judah, uh, together with Benjamin and, and ultimately Levi as well, made up the southern tribe called Judah. Uh, the term Jew is merely a slang form of Judah and refers only to the descendants of Judah, not to the descendants of, of Reuben and Gad and Naphtali and Issachar and uh, Ephraim, Manasseh and all the others. So the name Israel is something that specifically applies in a biblical and then a prophetic sense to Ephraim and Manasseh. All right, let's notice in Leviticus 26. Skip on ahead a ways. We come down to Leviticus 26. We find where God gives blessings and cursings. And he said, Leviticus 26, verse 3, If you will walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then will I give you rain in due season. And the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield her fruit. Your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time. You shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down. And none shall make you afraid, and I will rid evil beasts out of your land. Neither shall the sword go through your land. Neither shall the sword go through your land. When was the last time? You know, that we, the United States, has ever been invaded by a foreign army. But we, we fought a civil war here on our, on our soil. But when have we ever fought a war when we were invaded by a foreign army? The only, the only war we ever fought uh, where we were actually the subjects of, of invasion fought with foreign troops on our soil was when we fought with Brother Ephraim back uh, originally in the Revolutionary War and later uh, the War of 1812. We've not been invaded since that time, we fought wars all the way on up into this century. The sword has not gone through our land. The last time England was, successive, was successfully invaded and actually had war fought on its soil because of an outside invader was in 1066 when William the Conqueror invaded England with his Norman troops and established himself as King of England. And actually he had a, he had a claim to the throne through lineage. So in a sense that was even a somewhat of a civil war our nation, England and Britain, America, we've never known what it is to have our land ravaged by foreign troops. It's never happened to us yet. You know, during World War II, the dark days of World War II, Britain stood off the coast of Europe alone. All of Europe 
was under the boot of Nazi Germany. And yet, only a few miles of water separated England from the rest of the continent. But Hitler was unable to invade that island. He was unable to set foot, the foot of his soldier, on that island. God says, you do these things, the result is you'll dwell in your land safely. Neither shall the sword go through your land. You'll chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. He goes on talking about the blessings that we would have, the blessings we would receive if we obeyed him. Now, he said in verse 14, if you will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments, if you will despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that you shall not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I also will do this unto you. I will appoint over you terror, consumption, the burning ague, that shall consume the eyes and cause the sorrow of heart. You shall sow your seed in vain, and your enemies shall eat it. I'll set my face against you, and you shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sin. And I will break the pride of your power, will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. Your strength shall be spent in vain. Okay, God inspired Moses to speak this to the children of Israel prior to their entrance into the land of promise. They entered into the promised land and the land of Palestine. Did they obey God? Did they really keep God's covenant? Did they really do what they said they would do? Did they obey God? No, they didn't. The result of that was that the blessings were turned into curses. And they began to suffer problems and, and the, the disease epidemics that rent the land of Israel, the land of Judah. All of the problems that multiplied, that intensified, that finally resulted in foreign troops coming in. The troops of the Assyrian Empire invading northern Israel in the year 721 B.C. Between 721 B.C. and 718 B.C., the ten tribes of northern Israel were carried into captivity. Israel was taken captive. A number of years later, Judah, of course, didn't learn a lesson from that. They were spared that particular captivity, but a number of years later, in 604 B.C., a little over a hundred years, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded Judah and began taking the captivity. Finally, in 585 B.C., Jerusalem was burned to the ground. The temple was destroyed, and all of the Jews that remained were taken to Babylon. God promised that captivity here. And he said in verse 18, If you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sin. How does the Bible define a time? What does the Bible mean when it uses that terminology? How, uh, how is a time defined from a biblical standpoint as far as a uh, duration, a length, Back in Daniel, let's see, back in Daniel, for instance, in chapter 12, verse 7, we're told here in the latter part of the verse, it shall be for a time, times, and a half, when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Now, you can go through and you can read uh, in various various accounts. Well, let's, let's go back to Revelation. Let's notice uh, here the way that, the, that, that this is used. Revelation chapter 11. Notice verse 2, the latter part of the verse. The holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. I'll give power unto my two witnesses. They'll prophesy a thousand two hundred threescore days. 
1260 days. 1260 days is the exact equivalent of 42 30-day months. So 42 months, 1260 days is used here uh, as being uh, the same period of time. Uh, it uh, Later in verse 11, it uses the type of three and a half days that the two witnesses are to be dead using this uh, this term. A little bit later, down in Revelation 12, verse 6, it talks about the woman fled into, into the wilderness, into a place which she had prepared of God, a thousand two hundred three score days, twelve hundred and sixty days. Down in verse 14, it talks about the woman taken into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished, for a time and times and half a time. Now, verse 6 refers to it as 1260 days. Verse 14 refers to it as time, times, and a half a time. In other words, a time, times, and a half a time is equal to 1260 days, or equal to 42 months, equal to three and one half years. So a time, from a biblical standpoint, is the rough equivalent of a year. Three and a half times is 1260 days. All right, seven times, as God defined back in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16, as we were just reading, God said, I will cause, or Leviticus 26 rather, not 16, God said, I will cause seven times to pass over you. I will punish you seven times more for your sin. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, the king, uh, went through his punishment, which typified the punishment God was to visit on the Gentiles. And it was to be for seven times. God told Nebuchadnezzar, seven times will pass over you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was literally insane for seven years. All right? Seven times is twice the length of three and a half times, right? Seven, uh, three and a half is half of seven. So three and a half years is equal to 1260 days as the Bible defines it. Then seven times or seven years would be the equal of twice that much. 2,520 days. You can add that up. Uh, if you don't trust my... If you don't trust my arithmetic, it's come out that way. 2,520 2, days is the equivalent of seven years, seven times. Now, I, I've, we've gone through this is, is back in the book of Daniel where it talks about the times of the Gentiles and the seven times that were to pass over the Gentile kingdoms. Okay, here is a punishment that was to be visited upon Israel. Seven times they were to be punished for their sins. 2,520 days. Now, well, you can go to uh, Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, where God says that a day for a year shall they bear their punishment. The same statement is made in Numbers 14.34, that for a day for a year shall they bear their punishment. Israel went into captivity. In 718 to 721, or 721 to 718 B.C. If you come forward from that period of time, 2,520 years, the seven times that were to pass over Israel, God said, if you don't obey, you're going to go into captivity, and your seven times are going to pass over you, I'm going to punish you for that length of time, then I'm going to give you another chance. That seven times passed over them, that 2,520 years ended. And again, you can go through and check it out by arithmetic you will find that 2,520 years after 721 to 718 brings you out to the time period of 1800 to 1803. 1800 to 1803. Interestingly enough, if you figure from the original captivity of Judah, their time, the time when they came under foreign domination, when the land of Judah came under foreign domination in 604, 
Judah did not come under Israelite domination where it was actually ruled by an, by an Israelite power for 2,520 years, which brings you forward to 1917, back literally to the day that Jerusalem fell, according to records, I mean, the, the dates are given in the Bible and it'll figure out uh, to the 17th of December, 604 B.C., if you want to check it back, you have to do computations with a, with a calendar, but uh, to switch over the dates that are given in Daniel to our modern reckoning of uh, Roman calendar, but it comes out to December the 17th, 604. And on December the 17th, 1917, General Allenby entered into the gates of Jerusalem with the British troops, and Jerusalem, for the first time in 2,520 years, was no longer under the overlordship of a Gentile power. General Allenby's troops entered in. Britain, uh, Jerusalem was freed from the rule of the Turks, and Britain ruled it up until independence was given in uh, uh, 1949 when, when the state of Israel, the modern nation uh, of the Jews, came into being. And in 1917, the Balfour Declaration went out, or it was, it was made official, it had been promulgated, talked about before, but it actually came into effect at that time that the Jews were then allowed to return. See, that 2,520 years of captivity or, or, or punishment had passed over. All right, the 2,520 years on Israel came out to, to 1800 to 1803 as we come down to our modern time. That was the beginning of our great expansion. In 1800, the United States consisted basically of a little strip of land along the Atlantic sea coast. By 1803, in that year, we added the single largest territorial acquisition that this nation ever received, the Louisiana Purchase. We bought that from Brother Reuben, France, at the grand price of five cents an acre. That's what it figures out to. Five cents an acre. We paid $15 million. Now, it's interesting as you go through, and, and I, I'd like to get into this a little bit. I, I thought I'd have more time than I did, but uh, that's the story. Such is life. Uh, we did not go out and actively seek the blessings that we had. We didn't set out to buy the Louisiana Purchase. All we wanted was access up and down the Mississippi River. Thomas Jefferson, the President of the United States, sent an emissary to France, to Napoleon, to say, can we buy the port of New Orleans? Well, what anybody wants with New Orleans? <laughs> uh, uh, shouldn't say that. But uh, anyway, it's got its good points, I'm sure. Now, Louisiana, I can understand. See, then you take into consideration the whole states. I've pointed out to Texans... When God got ready to bless the United States, what did he give them? He gave them Louisiana, the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, that did include a little bit more than the state of Louisiana, but uh, you know, we won't count the rest of that. Anyway, Jefferson, all, all he wanted was the port of New Orleans so that we, had, uh, we could use the Mississippi River because of transportation to bring barges down with uh, the, the western farmers, what was called the West at that time, which was west of the Appalachian Mountains, uh, bring it down the, the Mississippi River down to the port of New Orleans and sell it. Napoleon didn't want to sell New Orleans. He wanted to sell the whole thing, the, the entire Louisiana Purchase. And they kind of seesawed back and forth. Jefferson was hesitant whether to take it. Uh, Congress, uh, there were many in Congress that objected. Can you imagine? They thought it was too much money. $15 million, that's outrageous, you know, to pay for uh, the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, who ever heard paying five cents an acre for land? Well, they didn't, cons they, they didn't stop to think it through. It went through, but if you go back and you read, it stirred up a lot of controversy. It was not something we actively sought for. It was something God dumped in our laps. 1803, it's interesting, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland 
was formed in 1800, the Union Jack. The United Kingdom came into being in 1800. 1803, we received uh, the Louisiana Purchase. From that time on, the birthright blessings began to come and began to pour upon this nation. Now, you go back, actually just prior to that time is when Britain received Canada. Uh, Reuben, the firstborn, the ancestor of the French nation, had first choice. He had first chance, but he always uh, lost out in the long run. Now, the French were in Canada first. There was a war fought called the Seven Years' War in Europe. We called it the French and Indian War over here. Uh, basically, the time period, what, 18, uh, 1756 to 1763, uh, the time period this war was fought. When the war was over, Britain had won, and France was called upon to forfeit many of its colonies. Now, the French settlement in Canada consisted of very little. Uh, they had a few trading posts, a few uh, settlers, but uh, it was not an extensive matter at all. Well, after the war, the, the uh, Seven Years' War, the question came up as to what should Britain receive from the, uh, uh, from the aftermath of the war. And it was, uh, it was pointed out. Well, uh, I'll just read you. I'd like to read you just a little bit from this book, History of England and the British Empire. Uh, says, one aspect of the peace discussion reflected clearly the uh, mercantilist conception of colonial values. There were many who argued that it would be better for Britain to take the sugar island of Guadalupe instead of Canada. While the latter would, quote, color the map red, quote, end quote, in impressive fashion, its scanty trade in beaver skins would not offset the burden of defense and administration, whereas a sugar island would mean immediate pro profits, uh, though it were only a dot on the map. The final decision in favor of Canada was influenced primarily by the uh, sugar lobby from powerful British planters in Jamaica, who didn't want competition from another island that was selling sugar, uh, that would be able to, you know, pay it without uh, all of the, uh, the the taxes, you know, the the, uh, the tariffs. Now, can you imagine here again? You know, God got ready to give Britain. He began to to bequeath an empire on them, so He got ready to give them Canada. They said, No, no, we don't want Canada. We want we want something really impressive. We want the island of Guadalupe in the West Indies. Now, you probably can't even find the island of Guadalupe on a map. But that was what they wanted. They said, oh, Canada, oh, they've got a few beaver up there. We, you know, uh, we, we don't want any of that. And the only reason they didn't take it was not because someone had such great forethought and such great vision that he could look down and see what ought to be. It was a matter that there was politics going on, and there were a few guys that had the sugar market cornered, and they didn't want any competition. And so they said, no, no, you, you, we, let's not take that island of Guadalupe. Well, God got ready to give Britain an empire. They weren't sure they wanted an empire. Now, they, it took them a long time to, to get the picture on some of that. There is, not, there is not but one colony on the entire North American continent that was founded by direct action of the British government. They, the British government did not uh, actively set out to really uh, colonize and take uh, control. Halifax, Nova Scotia, which was founded in 1749, was the only community in America founded by direct action of the British government. The only community on the American continent founded by direct action of the British government. It was not something that they set out, boy, you know, we're going to maneuver around, we're going to create this great empire. Uh, the Germans, uh, who looked on with great envy, made the statement that Britain wandered into its empire in a fit of absent-mindedness. And... Uh, you know, they worked very diligently to carve out an empire for themselves, and it kept falling apart. 
And they put together an empire, and, you know, God had put his thumb on it, and the whole thing had fallen apart, and they'd raise up an army and get out to conquer another one. And they never could quite make it. And here were the British that, you know, all of a sudden they woke up one morning and, and a quarter of the world had the Union Jack flying over. India came to Britain originally. Uh, King Charles II got uh, the Portuguese, had a little colony down there in India. And uh, uh, King Charles II of Britain married the daughter of the King of Portugal. And the King of Portugal, I don't know if, if uh, you know, his daughter wasn't... Uh, uh, didn't have very much on, on her own to make her desirable. He decided he had to kind of uh, make it a little, make the deal a little better. So he threw in this colony he had in India for good measure. You know, look, you'll take my daughter off my hands. I'll give you uh, this colony in India. I have. I'll kind of throw that in for good measure. Well, uh, Charles took the colony and didn't really know what to do with it. They're, they wound up a British company, British East India Company, that went over there and set up trading. And they went on. India at that time was a part of the Mughal Empire, which in the 1800s disintegrated, and such widespread terrorism broke out that finally the British Army had to come in and put a stop to things. And they wound up, they, had, they, they owned it when it was all over with. It was not something they set out to conquer. It was something that fell in their lap because it, uh, it disintegrated. You go down to uh, the same thing with Australia. Australia was not looked upon as, as a colony. Uh, Australia, originally, it was stumbled upon, and somebody got the idea, why don't we exile the prisoners? Australia was made the prison colony. You know, this is what we'll do with all the undesirables in society. We'll ship them off to Australia, and that's, you know, that's a uh, piece of rock out in the ocean somewhere. Nobody, you know, nobody knows anything about that. We'll put them out there. We'll use that for one giant prison. And so that's what they did. They shipped them out to Australia, uh, all of the prisoners. Uh, Georgia was founded as a prison colony in the United States, by the way. Uh, so uh, what that's worth, if you're from Georgia, doesn't necessarily prove anything one way or the other. But uh, it was something that uh, uh, Australia had actually been discovered by the Dutchman, a Tasman, in 1642, but the Dutch couldn't see any value to Australia. They didn't even bother uh, to establish a colony there. Uh, there. There was no intention, the British had no intention of establishing a normal colony. Uh, they just decided to exile some prisoners there. And somebody got the idea that sheep grew pretty well in Australia. The population began to increase. And then God, who has a way of attracting people's attention, allowed gold to be discovered in them bar hills. And boy, did Australia grow in a hurry. The population, uh, population multiplied ten times over in about two or three years. Everybody was racing to Australia. You know, when God got ready, when God got ready to, to expand this nation across, across the entire continent, take in the West Coast. You know, if God had, had come along and he told our people, he said, look, I'm going to give you people the entire, I want to give you all the North American continent. I want you to go from sea to sea. And I want you to go over to California and that area over there and I want you to settle that. You know what people would have said? No, sir, not me. You're trying to get us out there and we'll get killed, all those Indians out there in the desert. We'll, we'll probably die crossing the desert. And there's snakes and Indians and all kinds of things out there. Not me, buddy. I'm not going to cross that desert. You know, that's what Israel told God when he told them to go in the promised land. And there were the Canaanites there, and they said, No, we're scared of it. We don't want to go in there. All these people out there, we, we'll get hurt. We're scared. Well, God didn't bother, you know. God didn't bother to tell us, uh, to tell Israel, Look, I want you to go there because I want to give it to you. God knew, you know, human nature. All they, all they had to do, gold was discovered in California. People forgot about the Indians, the desert, the snakes, the cactus, everything. Boy, they took off as fast as they could, beating it across to California. Everybody wanted to get in on the act. And all of a sudden, in a matter of just 
uh, two or three years, California had mushrooms. And we had the gold rush of 1849. Well, the same was true with Alaska. That was Seward's folly. That was an icebox that the Russians had, had sawed off on us as we looked at it. The Secretary of State was almost subject to impeachment because of it. And, and nobody, oh, we don't want to go up there, you know, we'll freeze to death. All those Eskimos up there. God dangled a little bit of gold up there, and pretty soon people were happy to go up there. Everybody wanted to get in on the Klondike gold rush. You can go on and on. The same thing with South Africa. When God uh, got ready to, to expand that, there was only a little tiny colony that was settled down there on, on the coast in Cape Town. Then gold was discovered. And again, what did you have? The boar trekkers, the, the, the searchers for gold. And boy, they took off. And, and pretty soon the whole southern part of Africa was colonized all the way up into Rhodesia. Why? Because you know, God knew human nature. He knew how to attract people. And you, you do it better by dangling a little bit of gold. And, and we spread out. Our people spread out. They colonized. They went into these areas. And you can look time after time as to the way that we accomplish some of these things. Take Texas for an example. You know, there were uh, the state of Massachusetts threatened to secede from the Union at the idea of Texas being admitted. Uh, they, they were very upset. They were very irate about that. Uh, Congress rejected, you know, you Texans, uh, maybe you can uh, feel, have feelings of rejection. You know, Congress rejected taking you for about nine years, from 1836 to, to 1845. Congress rejected, no, we don't want Texas in the Union. They turned it down. Congress actually voted it down. They wouldn't take it on a gift because here Texas had won their independence from Mexico in 1836. And again, you go back to, to how that came to be. The original uh, colonists that came to Texas, uh, you go back to Stephen Austin, his father, Moses Austin, was a subject of the King of Spain. Moses Austin lived in, in the area of Louisiana back in the 1700s and was a subject of the King of Spain because Louisiana at that time was a Spanish colony. And when Spain sold Louisiana to Napoleon, which Napoleon turned around and sold to the United States, the king of Spain granted uh, the right of his subjects in Louisiana to immigrate to any other part of the Spanish Empire and promise them land. Based on that promise, Moses Austin put in for a land grant in Texas, which was still uh, under the uh, government of Spain on up until what? Uh, around 1824, this, this general time period when Mexico won its independence. And, uh, uh, or actually around 1820, the, uh, the, when he immigrated into that area, came in, into this area, uh, was with the idea of establishing that colony. And uh, it was not with the idea of uh, building up something for the United States. The, the, the uh, colonists came in. Uh, the, the area of Texas was, of course, began to be settled. And the ultimate uh, cause of the, uh, of the Texas Revolution, which, of course, many Texans of uh, Spanish descent as well as of Anglo descent were involved in. Uh, got back to Santa Ana's uh, usurpation in Mexico City and his abolishment of the Constitution of 1824 and the uh, taking over the, the dictatorial takeover that that uh, took place. And so ultimately, Texas won its independence, offered itself to the Union, said we'd like to join, and the United States said, No, no way, boy, not on your life. We don't want you. You can just go down through history. You can look time after time. The Suez Canal, Britain didn't set out to build that. Britain didn't set out to, to acquire the Suez Canal. France actually had first, first choice on it. Uh, the the Khedive of, of Egypt, the ruler of Egypt, got in hock because he kind of had a mania for gambling and he ran up into a lot of debt. He needed to raise some cash in a hurry, and so he offered to sell his shares in the Suez Canal 
which was uh, being completed, he said, I'll sell it. You know, anybody want to buy it? Well, the Israeli, who was the Prime Minister of, Israel, uh, of, uh, of England, borrowed some money from the Rothschilds, bought the canal, and got up and told Parliament about it later. Well, you know, we have a canal on our hands. And, and Britain came into possession of the Suez Canal. You can go in time after time, place after place, where God gave our people these blessings. Not things that we had set out to acquire, that we had thought through, and because of some great vision on our part, had set out and, and maneuvered around to where we got. In place after place, time after time, example after example, God gave it to us, in some cases uh, virtually against our will. Yet, the result, back in the book of Deuteronomy, verse 8, or chapter 8, rather. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. Notice, well, let's just pick it up in chapter 8. Let's, let's pick it up in verse 7. For the eternal your God brings you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive, and honey, a land wherein you shall eat bread without scarceness, wherein you shall not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you may dig grass. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the eternal your God for the good land which he's given. Beware that you for not, forget not the eternal your God and not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command you this day. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when your herds and your silver and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the eternal your God which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that terrible and great wilderness, wherein are fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought forth water out of the rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers knew not, that he might humble you, that he might prove you to do you good at your latter end. And you shall say in your heart, My power, the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But you shall remember the eternal your God, for it is he that gives you power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which he swore unto your father, as it is this day. And it shall be that if you do at all forget the eternal your God and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. And the nations which the eternal destroyed before you, as those nations, so shall you perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the eternal your God. God gave us these blessings based on the blessings that God promised Abraham as a result of Abraham's faithfulness and Abraham's obedience. As a nation, we have taken the credit. We've taken the credit to ourselves. We haven't given it to God. We haven't appreciated what God has given us. We've polluted our land. We've abused it. And we've selfishly taken the credit and blamed God for the problem. We, all of us, brethren, as individuals, need to examine ourselves and make sure that we're not guilty of our national sin of ingratitude, that we don't take God for granted. We need to understand the source of the blessings that we have. We need to give thanks and pray to the great God who has given to all of us that we enjoy, that we have here in this land. And we need to make sure that we never fall into that category of being unfaithful, ungrateful to the great God who is the source of every good gift.